Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Thank you for listening. We've had the pleasure of interviewing several comedians on this show and look forward to speaking with many more when performers return to touring. Today, We'll listen back to a conversation with the Emmy Award-winning comedy writer and stand-up performer, Greg Fitzsimmons. If your taste leans more towards suspense, Don't Let Go is a thriller streaming now. The versatile British actor David Oyelowo will tell us about the time-travel, genre-defying movie. Movies are the topic of our first segment, too. We're known as Yollywood, thanks to the amount of film and television production in Georgia for over 40 years now. Carrie Burns is CEO and chief movie buff of Atlanta Movie Tours. She's been engaged in the Atlanta film industry for years and joins us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. Carrie, please tell us about your background in the film industry. It's a little bit of an odd one. I am actually what the city of Atlanta calls a film liaison that has been a new term for the neighbors who have kind of helped the film industry along from a location standpoint when they do on location filming all around the city, which is kind of hard to miss with all the yellow signs with the letters on them. So I have been in Castleberry Hill in downtown Atlanta for 19 years. And when the filming really ramped up in the, around 2008, 2009, and we had more and more production coming into the neighborhood. It was the idea of making them feel welcome, but understanding that they are in a residential community and that they there are guidelines that they need to follow. And I, I developed a good relationship with a lot of location managers and um, people in locations and on production. And that kind of um, seeded my love not just for film, which I already had, but for Georgia film in particular to really uh, show all of these places off because we 
rarely play ourselves. So you're seeing New York or California, Detroit, and it's actually Atlanta. Mm. So you're kind of a neighborhood ambassador to the film industry. That's pretty much what it is. Um, it's there are each neighborhood kind of they're they're working hard so that every neighborhood has this where there is somebody who um, is kind of at the, the communication point between the neighbors and the businesses and the production. And that has has definitely started to, with the new City of Atlanta Film Office, has started to get some better foothold on that. And we've had we've actually had some Zoom meetings through all of this and had some location managers jump in. And and I've also been speaking with some producers and people at the state and city about, you know, what's going to, what it's going to look like uh, when productions start to come back. Yeah. What inspired you to create the Atlanta movie tours? So it was in January of 2012 and a girlfriend of mine invited me to dinner we started talking about The Walking Dead because I'm pretty convinced that anybody, especially at that time, that was a Walking Dead fan would find a way to work it into random conversations. And at that time was giving tours to friends who would come in for different, you know, if they were coming through the city or coming for events like Dragon Con. And I would give them these little location tours of where they filmed Walking Dead all around the city, and I'd throw in some other productions and everything that were here, but the focus was really on Walking Dead, and when I said that to my girlfriend, she said, you know, we, we should do that as a business, and being a fan of those types of location tours in New York and California, I kind of went home and was like, you know what, I, I, I think we could do that, you know, nobody else was doing it, and we basically started to put a plan together around that first tour that I was kind of already doing in March 21st of 2012. So just, it was less than two months from the time that we had first said it, we had our media tour. And then about a week later, we had our first public tour and it was sold out. And we just kept kind of growing from there and have a, have a pretty robust staff now. All of our guides are, we call them insiders. They're all from the film industry. They're um, background extras, they're stuntmen, they're precision drivers. So they, they have some fun stories. Everybody keeps it pretty light and uh, no spoilers, no, you know, we have to be very careful with copyright, <laughs> copyright laws around intellectual property. Oh, it sounds exciting. You, you mentioned the year 2008. That's when the Georgia Entertainment Industry Investment Act was signed into law. I understand Georgia has become the nation's most popular site for on-location filming. Carrie, in recent years, how have you seen the film industry change in Atlanta? It has changed exponentially. You know, it started back with Jimmy Carter and the administration then realizing that we were losing productions to places like Louisiana that had a tax credit incentive program already in place. And they started it there. And then in 2008, when the, when this started to really pick up, they revisited the plan. And that's really when you saw a bigger explosion, especially for TV shows. 
and you started to see Vampire Diaries and some of these longer running TV shows come in. Now we have, uh, in recent years, we've had the studios just explode. Uh, I mean, you've got so much studio space and that's actually something that very, very few states outside of California have. Um, New York struggles with studio space and we have so much of it and it gives a, it, it gives the ability for productions to come in here and build out anything they need on those on those lots and then to come out into the city and in around the state and to film on location so you started to see marvel and uh, now disney marvel studios it just you know that was a game changer to have productions on that scale come through and it, it's just kind of continued to grow from there where we have so many tv shows that are here all the time. How did the COVID-19 pandemic affect Atlanta films that were in production, that were shooting? Sure. A, a lot of them, a lot of them tried to wrap up as quickly as possible and really get the, the final pieces done for the seasons they were working on. Some had just started to ramp up such as Stranger Things, so certain things were, were put on hold. In the case of Walking Dead, they actually finished everything, but they have post-production work that they have to do and they need access to, to equipment that they don't necessarily have at home. So even the final episode of the most recent season of Walking Dead is, is on hold. And then the others, you know, so they just basically just shut it down. And, uh, and now they're having those discussions about what it looks like to come back and how they can do that safely with the size crews that they have. This brings us to the creation of Georgia Film and Chill. How are you adapting your tours to a virtual experience? It's been very exciting. You know, we're not limited by locations. We're not limited by traffic. <laughs> we, we can be even more creative than we've ever been, which didn't feel possible. It's been challenging to get the first ones going, but we are basically the same way we do our tours where we have multiple versions based on different fan bases. We're doing the same thing with these, where we started with one that was broader, that would cover a lot of different productions and not one, you know, one TV show or one fan base. And now we have two more that will roll out very soon and then two more after that. So, you know, you kind of get the first one and get your feet wet and then and then start rolling out from there. And they're, they're a lot of fun. And they, we have um, private companies that want to do it for their groups because they need something new to do. And then we have our public tours. One of the challenging things is because people aren't here, we also have to, of course, take into account uh, time zones. And we've even had people ask about tours when they're 12 hours ahead of us. So our current tour times would be 1.30 in the morning and 5.30 in the morning for them. So we have to, we have to reevaluate our, our timing a little bit to be able to, to do it everywhere. But we also opened up our audience to the world instead of just people who are traveling to Atlanta, which is a pretty amazing opportunity. Yeah, that's exciting when you talk about 12 hours ahead. You're talking about... Asia, South Africa, remote locales. This speaks very well of the reach of Georgia film. What are some of the locations and sites that 
the Film and Chill Tour covers? We try to cover as many as possible. We cover some that are a little bit more, I would say, obvious to um, Atlanta uh, locals and, and natives, such as the Jackson Street Bridge. But locations like the Porsche Experience Center down at the airport, which played the Avengers headquarters, is, you know, that's a such an iconic building and such an iconic brand that to be able to also show people that this was the Avengers headquarters is um, is pretty remarkable. And we cover some locations. We The majority of locations that are on the current tour, they are ones that we go to on our bus tours. And so we kind of kept that first one as things that we really had researched and knew about, such as Sleepy Hollow Farms in Powder Springs, which is used, um, which was used by Stranger Things. And so th- those are nice to be able to kind of shout out our partners. Can people opt for private tours? Of course. Yeah, we just did one. We had a, um, a group that was supposed to be touring with us in real life. Uh, and then with this happening, they were unable to. And so they're, they've just kind of put it on hold until everything settles down. And we're in a position to do the bus tours again. And we offered them the opportunity to take this virtual tour for all of their team, wherever they are. And they've got them in a lot of different states. So we have a, we have a number of requests that keep coming through. We had a senior center recently asked about doing it for their folks. And so we have a lot of opportunity to be able to, to offer this to people who, who are still definitely locked down and, and being very cautious and being safe. I understand that the tours include an interactive chat. Who will take part in those conversations? So that was part of what we had to really think about was what there, there are a lot of virtual tours going on around the world. And we really had to think about how we wanted to do it with Zoom with, you know, did you do it as a meeting, as a webinar? We're now testing out Microsoft Teams, which a lot of corporations use, and some require Microsoft Teams to be used. So we're looking at at expanding the platform there. But with the interactive chat, every tour basically has a live guide, one of our insiders, and they see him and they they then have a slideshow that they go through with just some fun trivia and things like that. And so the chat is open the whole time and people can talk to themselves and, and kind of uh, chime in on the trivia. And then there's a Q&A where people can also upvote questions. So if somebody's asking the same question, they can just upvote it. And then at the end of the tour, the guide answers all of those questions. Any celebrities taking part? We have been talking to them. They are definitely, we have a number of them who have toured with us in the past that are definitely interested in jumping in. So we're seeing how that could, you know, work and not not totally disrupt the tour and throw things off track. But with our Walking Dead um, based tour and our Stranger Things based tour that are coming up, we are looking at at trying to have them come in for a little five minute kind of thing towards the end of the tour, which we think would be just super fun. And and they all like doing uh, different things and new things. And it's easier for them to do that than have to get on a bus. <laughs> so. Oh, yes. And, and what fun that would be. I, you know, I'm just thinking about if Stranger Things, if we have to wait too long 
they're going to be out of their teenage years pretty soon. Those kids grew up quick. (laughs) Oh, did they ever. Still charming as ever. On May 12th, Tyler Perry announced he was starting back with his productions. On the tours, will you discuss any of the movies that are resuming production in Atlanta? Oh, of course. And Tyler Perry Studios is part of this first tour that we that we do. We have some fun shots from from their website and from their the entrance to their studio. We have worked with them over the years, and it's a remarkable studio. We have been fortunate enough to help take some state legislators there to uh, talk about the tax credit and for them to be able to see a small business like ours and uh, a massive uh, studio like, uh, well, it's, I mean, it, it honestly is just a world-class studio that, um, that Tyler Perry has built. So we've been able to do that and they are definitely going to be the first ones to ramp up and they have the ability to do it with keeping people there on the property. Honestly, his turnaround time for movies and TV shows is amazing. It's so short that very few productions that can match what Tyler Perry does. So his productions will will definitely be the first ones that I know they're testing to to make sure they can do what they want to do. And I think we'll see in the next month or so that they'll be able to, to start back. What's the secret of his quick turnaround? You know, I... <laughs> I think if if anybody could figure that out, they could bottle it up. And um, <laughs> <laughs> because it's it's amazing how you know TV shows really do. They're here for a significant amount of time, and movies have a shorter turnaround. But they uh, Tyler Perry just has, I think he just has a, a model about it. And now that he's built this studio, he has the ability to do so much there that it also doesn't require going out on location. So where before, you know, he still had a, a quick turnaround, but now, gosh, he can almost build out anything that he needs between the properties that he has there at, at Fort McPherson. Amazing. When we return to life after pandemic, Carrie, do you think virtual tours are something you'll continue to offer? Oh, yeah. Uh, I think there's there's no question that you know, we're kind of just getting started on the on the marketing and, and that, you know, PR push side. And it is the type of thing that because people can take them from all over the world and they don't just have to be here, we will have the ability to keep those going for as long as as long as we're around. And we're we're really looking at a stepped approach back into the bus tours. We work with transportation partners who they are looking into pretty massive sanitization methods to be able to offer their transportation services, which will just be a huge benefit to us because they will be able to pass that knowledge on to us. And working with those types of partners will get us back in those buses. But leading into that, we'll have walking tours. We're working on an augmented reality tour that would be uh, based on an app on your phone. So people who are traveling around, they will be able to do those on their own. So we kind of have a a timeline of re-entry, so to speak. Those virtual tours, I think, just like the app, will live even when we're back rolling. 
Kerry Burns is co-founder and chief movie buff of Atlanta Movie Tours. Their virtual Georgia Film and Chill Tours will be showing twice a week on Wednesdays at 5.30 p.m. and Sundays at 1.30 p.m. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Jack Radcliffe is on a mission to stop a murder that has already happened. The versatile and celebrated British actor David Oyelowo plays the role of Detective Jack Radcliffe in the 2019 film Don't Let Go. Not long after the movie begins... Detective Radcliffe receives a shocking phone call from his recently murdered niece, Ashley. And Jack does everything possible to try and change history. David Ogyelowo joined me in studio ahead of the film's Atlanta release last summer. That was one of the really tricky things about making this film. It, it as you say, um, features many different timelines, but as is the case with most films, we shot it out of sequence. So that was an added challenge when it came to the filming of, of, the, of, of the movie, but it just meant that we had to really map out um, the chronology of the film in order to be able to get that right. Oh, I can only imagine what, what, what was it like altering your character's response to a situation depending on the timeline were you able to keep it straight it was it was difficult i'm not gonna lie but thankfully our our director jacob estes who also wrote the script was very on top of it you know i tried to be on top of it but the thing that really helped is at the end of the day jack radcliffe's primary objective is the same which is to save his niece so no matter what timeline he's in you are playing the reality of that it's just different iterations different stimulus that he is dealing with different information that he has or doesn't have at any given time those were the things to try and keep your 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 head in as it were but what we really wanted to do is not patronize the audience allow them to also go on this ride as they try to figure it out alongside Jack Radcliffe and that is part of the excitement of the movie and the suspense and involves the viewers total engagement Um, non-linear narratives Mm. are very popular in 
literature now. Right. Um, do you think this is a trend for film as well? Um, well, it's something that I've loved in film, you know, whether it's Back to the Future or even more recently Edge of Tomorrow, Groundhog Day even, you know, we, we've there's a, a great t tradition of this kind of movie. I think that, you know, now in a world of so many prequels and sequels and remakes and all these kind of things, to have something that really challenges the audience's intellect, um, but within the... the the framework of a, of a genre piece, if you can nail that, then I think there's a real appetite for it because, yes, we want to be enta entertained, but we also want to be intellectually stimulated. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> One would like to think that. Yes. At its core, through each narrative, this story is about a sweet relationship between an uncle and his niece. Mm. Storm Reed, who portrays your character's niece, mm. Ashley, in the movie, is only 16 years old in real life. Mm. What was it like working with such a young actor? And such a young, brilliant actor. I mean, she was actually 14 when we uh, shot this. She was on the tail end of being 14. So, you know, to, to find someone who could play this role was something we knew was going to be a challenge. Um, I actually first encountered Storm's talent on the set of A Wrinkle in Time. My friend directed that film, and I went to visit the set, and there she was, just being brilliant. And I just thought, wow, this may well be who and what we've been looking for. I always felt that we needed someone who would be able to give the, the performance, a performance the likes of which Natalie Portman gave in The, um, uh, the Professional. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, and that, again, you watch that film even now, you just don't, how did she have the emotional intelligence, the experience, the maturity, the wherewithal to, to give that performance? And I really think Storm does a similar kind of job in this film. I hope she stays grounded. She will. She has a great family behind her. She has a great head on her shoulders. She still calls me Mr. David, which oh, is no. just, which, is, <laughs> which on the one hand I love, on the other hand makes me feel really old. But, uh, <laughs> but she's a wonderful, wonderful young lady. You know, um, thinking about Natalie Pullman in that, role, in that role in The Professional and then also uh, thinking back, on watching Storm Reed in the role of Ashley um, makes me hope that contemporary d directors don't engage in any of the nasty tactics that I know some of the Hollywood studio folks did in the earlier part of the 20th century with saying, your dog just died before right. Right. <laughs> the camera right. rolls. Right, right, yeah. We, we can trust the kind of direction. Well, yeah. yeah, you know, I think that uh, we now live in a world, especially uh, post Me Too, where the, the, the level of vigilance around how people are treated on a set or within the industry generally, um, you know, I definitely see a marked level of uh, responsibility being increased and vigilance being increased. I think that's a great thing. Um, you know, Storm is a minor, so her, her mother was on set with us every 
every take, every scene, every step of the way. Um, so there are definite uh, now more so than than in times gone by. There are there are definite things in place to make sure that there is no uh, nothing of that nature going on, which is a good thing. That's very encouraging to know. Yeah. So. Working with the director, and I should add, you are also a main producer of mm-hmm. Don't Let Go. How did you approach portraying this tender relationship between Ashley and Jack? Well, for people who see the film, they will see that we actually have not that much screen time together, but you have to really believe in the love between this uncle and his niece. And so Storm and I spent a fair bit of time together, but we also made a pact with each other that we would always be on set for the other person. There are quite a few phone calls in the film, but we were always on set uh, for those phone calls. So we were literally just in the other room, either on the phone or audible to the other person. So that, because there is something that happens when you're in the vicinity of someone relationally, as opposed to, you know, just on the phone, that removed thing that can happen. And even though they are on the phone in the film, you should feel like they feel each other's presence palpably, which is why you're rooting for them to be back together. So we just had this hunch that it would be a good thing for us to always be in the vicinity of each other. And I think it's something that really pays off in the film. Oh, that that in the moment interpersonal connection that comes through. Blumhouse Tilt, the film's production company, Mm. focuses mostly on black-led horror and thriller films like Get Out Mm -hmm. and Ma. David, how does this film differ from those movies, which focus more on race Mm -hmm. at the center of a psychological thriller? Yeah, it's interesting because I think Blumhouse has become more famous for 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 black-led genre films of late. I actually think it's that those films are some of the ones that have done the best business. Get Out being one, Us being another, Ma being another. But they also do uh, uh, horror films that are, are, are white-led. In fact, Don't Let Go was written as uh, oh, my character was a white character. It was set on a farm in Ohio. It had, really? Yeah, it was, it was not an African-American family. It was not in South Central Los Angeles. But they came to me because I guess the director was just looking for an actor he felt could embody this character. And then once that was the case, we all agreed that it should be more culturally specific. Um, and, uh, and so that's how it, it happened this way. So it's not necessarily a remit they set themselves. And the, the thing I I love about Don't Let Go is that it's not centered about around race, it's centered around family and so it has hopefully anyway a more uh, universal appeal. Yeah, as a matter of fact it wasn't until discussing the film afterward with my colleague that um, in viewing it it appears that nearly all of the characters both main and in the background are minorities and mostly African-American. Yeah. Was that intentional? 
it was a byproduct of the place that we were shooting it. That, you know, we shot it in South Central Los Angeles, and that's definitely the demographic uh, of, of that place. And we wanted to, the film to feel germane to that environment. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was, it was very much a, a byproduct of that. But that said, um, it wasn't until afterward talking with my producer that we realized that right. because uh, good guys, bad guys, loving relatives, good friends, it, it just, that was what draws the viewer into the story. Yeah, it's just a, it's just a human story. So it know. doesn't have the social satire, right. that layer of get out. Right, right. It doesn't. But in many ways, I think it's, it's, it's just as radical because we are still in a time um, in this country, in the world, in the film industry where a film like Don't Let Go is unusual whereby it's 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 a genre film um, that doesn't rely on race, that has a predominantly uh, African-American cast, but with universal appeal and very universal themes, uh, which is just family. You know, what would you do to save your family is, is kind of the central theme. And I think that's applicable to anyone and everyone everywhere. And, uh, you know, something I've always said, when I get out of bed every morning, the first thing I think is not, oh, I'm a black man. You know, I'm just, I'm <laughs> just a man. You have to check. Exactly. I'm a man. I have, uh, have a wife. I have kids. I have concerns. I have uh, likes. I have dislikes. And that's how I navigate my life. That's how we all navigate our lives. And I think the more we are able to see narratives that uh, platform that, I think the more we will recognize that we are more alike then we are different. Indeed. So how do you think Don't Let Go gives a proper platform then to black actors playing a multitude of roles rather than sort of typecast? Is, is this what you're saying? I know um, it applies to the tremendous attention women have been given with the Academy in terms mm -hmm. of directors mm -hmm. and, and some of the technical jobs on the set. Do you feel that this is a step forward as well? I think all of it is a step forward. I think diversity and inclusion, uh, in the past, they were sort of buzzwords. Uh, I think we are in a period now whereby it's not just the industry that's having to keep accountable to itself, but the audience is keeping the industry accountable and they are rewarding the industry financially for uh, um, uh, making these moves. Like I said, Get Out was a huge success. Us was a good success. Black Panther was a huge success. There, It's not just about being socially responsible. It's just good business. There are people out there who are saying, we want films that look like the world we inhabit and so therefore please give it to us you know the other thing that I think is really brilliant is seeing someone like Storm Reid be the lead in something like A Wrinkle in Time a huge film for Disney she gets to be uh, one of the leads in Don't Let Go that's something that when I was Storm's age was not happening you know when I was 14 or or 16 there just wasn't 
um, actresses of, of color who are being afforded that platform, which is so incredible because, you know, for me uh, as a black actor, and it, traditionally up until recently, you had to be in your 30s going into your 40s before you were afforded, you know, the kind of opportunities that really set you up as a leading man or someone who is a bankable star because you hadn't been being given those opportunities when you were younger. Now you have young performers who are going to have so much more behind them uh, by the time they're even in their 20s in terms of both audience and experience that is going to really set them up up for a much longer career. Oh, David, it is so encouraging to hear good news. <laughs> this is good news. It is. There is a lot of gun violence mm. in this movie, David. Mm. I even wondered if there was some com comparison to Bonnie and Clyde. Mm. Am I overthinking this? Um, was there some intention to make the level of violence an anti-gun statement? Well, it's, it's a really good question because you have, in my character, a detective who uh, has a very dysfunctional relationship with his brother. His brother is on the wrong side of the law, and that is something that has caused a schism in their relationship. And it's kind of why Jack has become a pseudo-father figure for his niece because of uh, the actions that his um, that her uh, father is, is undertaking. So in many ways, it is... It is anti-crime. It is anti-gun. It is because you see the byproducts of choices made that lead to that. Um, but you know the thing I'm the thing I'm so proud of in relation to the film is that in and amongst all of that uh, uh, violence, in and amongst all of of the uh, scary things in the movie, there's this sweet love. There's this sweet relationship, and hopefully the what it does is the stakes are so high with the amount of negativity around this young girl that you are so desirous for this uncle to succeed in saving his niece and being able to just uh, put a hedge of protection around her in relation to all the crazy going on in her life. So, you know, even though it is a fairly intense movie, there's no question um, at the core of it is this beautiful and loving relationship. Very much so. In addition to Storm Reed, Don't Let Go has some stellar cast members, including Brian Terry Henry yes. and Alfred Molina, yeah. to name just two. Can you tell us what it's like on the set? There's some brilliant actor surrounding you here. Yeah, I mean, I think good material is always uh, going to draw great actors and those actors you talked about um, are indicative of, of the power of the material. I think we all were drawn to it because even though it's a genre piece, we can identify with it. You know, um, we all have family members, whether it's children, wives, uh, um, uncles, aunties, parents, who we would do anything we could to try to save them from harm. And, you know, all of those actors I know identified with that theme um, in the story, which is, drew, which is what drew them to the film. Okay. I've been dying to ask you this because um, I mentioned Alfred Molina, who, like you, is British. Right. 
how do you guys speak American so well? <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I look at Idris Elba, um, Dominic West, right. uh, fill in the name. Um, the, why are you able to speak American <laughs> dialect so well? And um, Americans can't seem to make that crossover. Well, we have an unfair advantage in that we grew up on American movies. You know, uh, cinema is so dominated by American film. And since I can remember, I was watching American movies. Uh, uh, I don't think as an American kid, you have quite the same um, level of exposure to British films or British television. And so, you know, I, I, I literally grew up as the with the American accent as almost my second language, if you like. And so you then add actor training to it. I've now lived in this country for 12 years. And the work that, you know, you have to put in to, in order to be able to convincingly portray um, a, an American, all of those things add up to, like I say, an unfair advantage I think I would have to my my African-American equivalent. Well, it is extraordinary for me because I look at some of the range that British actors have covered, including yours, and it seems effortless. Um, I, I, I once read when um, Hugh Laurie was on the set mm. of House, mm. Even when he was in his trailer, he would only speak American. Mm -hmm. Do you do something like that? Yes, yes. Uh, it's imperative. I did that for, for Don't Let Go. I did that for, you know, most times where I'm playing an American because... You, you, the last thing you want when you are playing a character, I mean, you and I are having a conversation right now. We are not thinking about whether we are going to make the right sounds in relation to what we are trying to articulate. You want to untether yourself from the fact that you are, you have that third eye on your accent. And the way to do it is to just to get into a, a habitual rhythm. But also what you, what you want, is, what you don't want is for anyone you're acting opposite to be having a moment where where they are having to adjust to the fact that you've adjusted your accent. You want them to feel completely free to just react to you in the same way they were between takes as they are on camera. So, for instance, right here in Atlanta is where we shot a lot of um, Selma, of, of me playing Dr. King. I just knew that if I had this accent one second, then I was going into my Dr. King accent, that would, you know, these congregations I would have to speak to and give speeches to, they would spend more time going, wow, how did he do that? As opposed to really listening to what the character is actually saying. So it's partly selfish for yourself, but it's also for the others that you're acting. Opposite. I think that's very considerate and very thoughtful. <laughs> Speaking of portraying Dr. King in Selma, that must have been an enormous honor and challenge to take on that role and his words. You were a radical young man in contrast to your father's role in The Butler, and you had a regal turn as a prince in United Kingdom. Clearly, you're a very versatile actor, David. Is that one of your goals, to seek out these widely varying roles? 
It one hundred percent is. You know, the actors I most admire are chameleonic. They, you can never really tell which way they're going to go next in terms of their performances. A huge hero of mine is Daniel Day Lewis. Um, you know, I would I would include Daniel, I would include Judy Dench in that, or, or or Denzel Washington, or Robert De Niro. You know, these are actors who, you know, they they are able to 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 throw down performances that defy expectation, and and I do think that's the way to a long career. But I do think that is also the job of the actor. My job is not to bring the role to me; it's for me to go to the role and try and inhabit it in a way that is devoid of who I am as a person, that's actually what I'm interested in. I like to think of myself as a student of humanity and I just happen to have a job that enables me to fully explore that. So that's what I'm always looking in any role that I get to play. The distinguished actor David Oyelowo. He stars in the thriller Don't Let Go, which is streaming now on Hulu. We've had the pleasure of interviewing several comedians on this show and look forward to speaking with many more when performers return to touring. Today, we'll listen back to a conversation from last August with the Emmy Award-winning comedy writer and stand-up performer Greg Fitzsimmons. Here, he talks about his start in comedy. Yeah, I was in college, and I was going to class during the day, and then my dream, since I was a kid, was to do stand-up, and so there was a stand-up comedy club next door to my dorm at Boston University, and so I would go to class, and then at night I would hang around the club and try to get five minutes where I could, and at the time, the scene was so fertile in Boston, there were so many amazing comedians that You've never heard of Don Gavin and Steve Sweeney and people that Irish the, names. I, they were all Irish comedians. Yes, Kenny Rogerson and Mike Donovan and and these were guys. David Fitzgerald. They were all guys that came out. A lot of them were tough guys. They came out of South Boston and Dorchester, and they had a real attitude. They and the crowds were tough. They were rowdy, like Bill Burr. Bill Burr came out of that scene, and you know Dennis Leary, and so. It was really like a scene where you would go into a sports bar and they would keep the TVs on. They would have a Red Sox game playing <laughs> over your shoulder while you're trying to make them laugh and they're doing shots of Jameson's. <laughs> Fights would break out. I got I got beat up on stage one night. No. Yes. What I, did you say that provoked that person? Well, it was a uh, it was a Jewish singles night at a club called Ironically Stitches. <laughs> And this guy was there, and he was uh, he was he was an Israeli cab driver, and I remember because his name was Simpka, and I told him, oh, that was the name of the village idiot in Woody Allen's movie Love and Death, and so uh, the crowd laughed, and he was there because he thought he was going to meet a nice Jewish girl, but they were all girls that were going to Boston University, and they were looking to marry doctors from Harvard and they didn't want to date a cab driver so he was kind of crushed and so he started heckling me and so I naturally had to fight back and then he he finally looked at me and he says nothing more and I said all right let me know when your friends get here so he came up on stage with his (gasps) fist clenched and he came at me and I hit him in the forehead with the uh, microphone, one of those old Game of Thrones microphones with the steel <laughs> mesh over the head of yes, it. Yes, a medieval microphone. A medieval microphone. And he, he got me in a headlock, 
and he spun me around the stage by my neck, knocked down all the tables. The bouncers came up. They broke it up. And uh, and so the show stopped, obviously. And then they, they set up the tables again. And then the owner of the club comes up to me and he goes, all right, Fitzsimmons, you got five more minutes. Set me back <laughs> up again. And I got a standing ovation. It was my first standing ovation because it's Boston and they would rather see a fight than a comedy show any night. <laughs> God, that gives new meaning to showstopper. That's right. I should say. <laughs> I'm a showstopper. Now, how did you go from this passion for stand-up to writing comedy? Well, I was doing so much stand-up, and then we had a baby. Me and my wife had a baby. Oh. And so for the first year, I was gone so much, and it was just taking too much of a toll on my wife. And I said, I got to get off the road. So I called a few friends, and uh, I got a meeting with Cedric the Entertainer, who is one of the most talented, funny, gifted oh, people I've ever met. I love his work. And so he brought me in, and I, I sat down with him for 15 minutes, and I pitched him jokes, and he laughed, and he hired me. And so from that, and that was about 18 years ago. And since then, I've been writing for TV about half the year, and then doing stand-up half the year. Yeah, I mean, you wrote for Ellen. You didn't just write for Ellen. Uh, you earned four Daytime Emmy Awards writing and producing for Ellen DeGeneres back in the early 2000s when it began. What was it like during those first few seasons? It was exciting to be a part of it, like in the months before the show launched, where you were putting it together and figuring out what the elements of the show were going to be and having Ellen basically take her personality and try to imprint it on the show and including like the famous dancing, which people don't realize the mandate on the show was don't take the camera off Ellen, which meant we were stuck because she comes out and she does the monologue at the front of the stage. But then what you call home base is where the couch is and her chair. And we had to move her from the monologue spot back to home base. And we said, how are we going to do that with the camera on her without her turning her back to the camera? And so somebody said, well, why don't you dance? And she goes, all right, I'll try that. So the first few shows, she gets out there and she dances. And she does this for a couple of weeks. And then she goes, you know, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. This, I'm tired. And I just, <laughs> I'm not feeling it some days. I don't want to dance. And so... uh so she didn't do it one day, and the uproar from the audience was, no, you're going to dance. And she's even admitted that she doesn't enjoy the dancing anymore, but that's what the audience wanted, so that's what she did. Oh, gosh, I remember when President Obama, I guess it was before he was president, when he danced with her. Oh, that's right. That was amazing. So yeah. he, there you were, present at the creation. You wrote a book about your childhood mishaps, Greg, and it has illustrations of the original disciplinary notes from teachers to your mom, dear Mrs. Fitzsimmons. What kind of mischief did you get into as a child? I grew up Bronx Irish, and there was a very strong sense of doing the opposite of what you were told to do. That was rewarded in my family, and it was... It was the sensibility. My parents would laugh a lot of times. I'd get into trouble, and I'd, I'd come home. We'd be sitting at dinner, and then my father would pull out a letter that was sent home from the school, a disciplinary report, and he would read it. And then anything could happen. I could get slapped. 
or I could get a big round of applause and laughter. <laughs> it and all so began there. It all began there. And so they would save them. And I didn't realize my mom was saving them. And I went into my aunt's basement in the Bronx about you know seven or eight years ago. And I found this box filled with these letters. And it was like a trophy case for them. It was like, this is what my kid did. This is how he stood up to people. And there was you know, reports of me getting into, I got arrested a few times, spent the weekend in jail for Wait, fighting and drinking. and. But this was all prep for your stand-up. Yes, exactly. This was all good fodder. And it was what the book became about. And I, I, would, I printed the letters in the book. And then in each chapter, I would talk about what was going on in my life. And a lot of it really was deep-seated problems with my father that I had as well. You know, we had a rough relationship, but I also loved him very much. And so I didn't set out to write that. I just set out to do a humorous book about the letters. And then in the year that I wrote it, I started going deeper and deeper into my relationship with my dad. And so the book was, I think, more heartfelt than I set out for it to be. Greg Fitzsimmons. His podcast is called Fitz Dog Radio. You can find new weekly episodes on his website, gregfitzsimmons.com. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow morning at 11 with a visit to the Grand Tetons and Yellowstone National Park by way of fiction for now. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Won't you subscribe to our new podcast? It's on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.